so like I said, um, I, I'm up here this week because of kind of a detour, and that's the series we're in is detour. Life changes, as we all know. Most of our plans don't turn out how we thought they would. Um, we lay in plans the best we can, and God kind of adjusts those plans. And that's what we're talking about in Paul's life, this adjustment of where God's taken him from where he may be intended to go and what's gone on in his life. And so if you were here last week, you remember Paul addressed the Jewish leaders when he was brought before them. He addressed them in Aramaic. And so this Roman commander who is trying to figure out what's going on is still unsure about what all the fuss is about. They're all worked up and riled up because of Paul um, coming back to Jerusalem. The religious leaders are. And the Roman commander has no clue what's going on because he got Paul to address the crowd, hoping this would calm them. He addresses them in Aramaic. The Roman commander still has no idea what's going on. And so he, at this point, is trying to find out what is happening. Why are they so upset? What do I do about it? And he wants to get to the bottom of what happened. In order to keep the peace, he was going to have Paul flogged. And that's when Paul revealed his Roman citizenship to keep from that happening. But he is desiring, he needs to know what's happening. Um, And so that's where we're picking it up today. If you have your Bible, it's Acts 22, verse 30. And then we're going to go straight into chapter 23. And we're going to see this Roman commander is trying to get to the bottom of what's happening. The first thing I saw here when reading was this, is that Paul has fulfilled his duty to God. Here in verse 20, chapter 22, verse 30, the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priest and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And this story really has some similarities to Jesus' arrest and ultimate crucifixion. And even Ron had mentioned that last week. You see this mixing of Roman officials and Jewish religious leaders. The Roman leader still can't find out exactly why this Jewish high council is so upset. And this sounds very familiar, right, to Pilate and Jesus. What's going on? Why are you so mad at this guy? What's he done? He really hasn't broken any laws Um, but they wanted him crucified. And so now he orders the Sanhedrin or this Jewish high religious council to meet. Now the difference here that you'll see is Paul had a lot more rights being a Roman citizen than Jesus ever had. And so Paul stands before them. As a Jew though, um, they would have had a very similar legal system to ours, which is you're innocent until proven guilty, right? So he stands before them uh, as an innocent person who's being accused of these charges against him, and he would have a right to know the charges that are against him. And the Roman commander determined the charges were religious, and so then he shifts the weight of this onto the Jewish Sanhedrin or the Jewish religious council. They're going to have to determine, in a sense, what to do with Paul. Now, the Roman commander didn't set on the high council, but he could order them to meet, which he did. However, the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin, couldn't necessarily dictate the punishment. They could almost give a recommendation of a punishment. I don't know if you've ever sought a recommendation on what you should do. It doesn't mean you have to do it. The Roman commander ultimately has to give his approval or blessing. Again, think back to Jesus with Pilate. They wanted him crucified. Pilate really didn't see a need to crucify Jesus, but he went with what they recommended in a sense and had Jesus crucified. He had to kind of give the final say of this. And basically this happened because he wanted to keep the peace Pilate at the time, and now this Roman commander, the the Jewish province or area was kind of under Roman control, and what they did not want was to have a riot 
or an uprising of the people. Because if you're the commander in charge of overseeing this group of people, the worst kind of black eye you could have if there was a uh, revolt or insurrection, if people kind of rose up against you. And so in order to keep the peace, Pilate had Jesus crucified. Well, this commander is trying to figure out what to do. So he has the Sanhedrin meeting saying, recommend what punishment, let's figure out what he did. The Roman commander really couldn't care if if Paul had broken a Jewish religious law. The Romans did not keep uh, Jewish religious law. But what he did care about ultimately was keeping peace. And so if, if the Jewish people were that upset and that riled up about what has happened, he might listen to their punishment that they recommend they give to Paul. Okay, so you got all this mix. I hope I didn't confuse you there. You got a mix of people. You got the Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish high council. You got the Roman commander and you got Paul. All right, and they're kind of all having this intermix of what's going on right here. And Paul's addressing now this council as a formal assembly. It's the Sanhedrin council. And they assemble and Paul's going to give his defense. Now, just previously, last week, uh, Ron had read this passage where Paul kind of gave us personal testimony and talked about his conversion. But now he's chose, he has to give his public defense before this assembled body. And I, I kind of give this illustration to understand it. I've, I've spoken with members of the Oakdale City Council individually about an issue that takes place in our neighborhood that frustrates me. And so I've spoken with them on a kind of individual basis, but I've never stood before them as an assembled council in a formal setting. And so Paul had given his testimony in this crowd of public people where some of the members of the high council may know what he, his testimony, but they weren't necessarily in a formal gathering sense. Kind of like I've spoken with members of the city council, but I've never spoken to them as the formal body. Well, now this is the formal body of the religious council called the Sanhedrin that's been assembled together, and Paul's supposed to give his public defense before them. And so he starts it this way. He says, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And the Greek word there for brothers is just adelphoi. And it's basically just the common and formal address that would have been used among assembled Jews. It was the polite way of respectfully saying, I'm one of you guys. I'm I'm also a Jew. I'm one of your brothers. Uh, Respectfully, I am one of you, in a sense, saying, standing up before them. Um, if you were to greet a formal body in a governing sense, you wouldn't get up there and, and you know, just start rattling off s- silly sayings or something. You would be more formal, more polite. And that's his saying is, uh, respectfully, I'm one of you guys. And he tries to almost ease the tension that's here because they're mad at him. In fact, they probably want to see him killed. And he's trying to ease that tension and respectfully enter into a conversation or his defense of what he's done. But that easing of the tension lasts for like half a second, right? He says that, and then he says, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience, and instantly they turn on him. And we're going to look at more of that in just a second. But before we move on, let's just think, Paul makes this really bold statement here, right? I fulfilled my duty to God in, in a good conscience to this day. How has he fulfilled his duty to God so far? Can we remember some of the things he's done? Man, he's went where God told him to go. If you think back of what we studied in the book of Acts, he's gone to all these places God's told him to go, even when it meant punishment, beating. One time he was beaten to the point they thought he was dead and drug outside the city. I mean, he went where God told him to go. He preached the gospel to the Gentiles. Here's a a Jewish leader, a follower of the law, who now is going to go and interact with Gentiles. That would have that was not something looked kindly upon by other Jews often. 
and he did that. He followed God wherever he told him to go. The most important thing he did when he fulfilled his duty to God was this. He continued proclaiming faith in Christ as the only means of salvation. We studied that in the book of Galatians. Even under extreme persecution, Paul never wavered off of that truth. And we saw that clearly stated when we studied that book of Galatians. And that ultimately is the truth that had these men so worked up. When Paul said the ultimate way of salvation, or not the ultimate, the only way of salvation is faith in Christ. That got him worked up because it said this, you don't have to do all these other things, these Jewish religious laws and religious works to be made right with God. And this council, that's all they've ever known. It's made up of Pharisees and Sadducees that all they've ever known in their life is pursuing this Jewish religious law is the way to be made righteous before God. And now Paul comes in and and, and continues proclaiming that message of Christ of saying, no, faith in Christ is what makes you right with God. And so this has them extremely upset with him. And this council, um, it would have had different men on it, but it was basically the same type of council that ordered the execution of Jesus, the Sanhedrin. And why did they get so upset with Christ? If you remember, it's because of the claims he made. He claimed to be God in the flesh. He claimed that he was the only path of salvation. He said that he would take away sins. And so these people, they hated him for that. When he made the claims that he was God in the flesh, they wanted to kill him. And now all of a sudden that anger, Christ has been killed and resurrected and he's off the scene in that sense. But now that anger in a sense is redirected. Well, where's that anger redirected to? It's redirected towards the people that are proclaiming that message now around the world. Mainly his apostles. The people that then took that message that Christ is the only hope of salvation and took that around the world. Well, that anger is now redirected towards them. So you got guys like Peter, Paul, um, and, and, and those are the two main ones we hear about, John. And all these guys that are taking that message of Christ around the world are under persecution now for proclaiming that. The only one who did not die a martyr's death was John, and he was boiled in oil and banished to an island to, to live alone the rest of his life. So this anger that ended up crucifying Jesus is this same anger is now redirected at Paul. And in the midst of all that anger, Paul saying, I live before God with a clean conscience. I continue to preach the gospel. I don't have to have guilt on my hands. Or at one point he said earlier in our reading, um, blood on my hands when Ron preached a few weeks ago. That he stands before God with a clean conscience because he is preaching that gospel message, that truth of salvation, the same truth that had Christ crucified, he's now proclaiming throughout the world. And so then we see this crowd get so upset. He says, I fulfill my duty to God in a good conscience, and they're going to get so angry. So let's look at our next point here. And we see that Paul respects authority mostly. I added that in there. Because I think he, mostly, he, he mainly did, and he handled a bad situation very well. But he did have an outburst here. Um, So let's go in Acts 23, verse 2. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? And Paul replied, brothers... I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. And so this claim that he's done everything before God with a clean conscience causes them to become very angry. And the high priest so much so that he orders Paul struck. 
And so they're very, again, this, this whole idea that Jesus is the way of salvation and not their religious law, the Jewish religious law, opposite ends of the spectrum. And that causes them to be mad that Paul's saying, I'm proclaiming Jesus and I can stand before God with a clean conscience. And so this like saying like, and you can't almost is what they're probably feeling this kind of guilt. And so he orders, uh, he orders him to be struck. Again, much like Jesus, the high priest ordered Paul to be struck. The high priest, if you remember when Jesus stood before him, had him struck. These are things that shouldn't have happened in the Jewish religious law until you were found guilty, but they did. And the high priest at this time was a man named Ananias, and he was the high priest from 48 to 58. And according to the Jewish historian Josephus, he was known for his liberal use of violence, so he would use violence regularly, and also his desire to be in good with the Romans. And so he would use, actually, he would use tithes that came into the Jewish temple to turn around and bribe Roman officials. He wanted to be in good with them. So he would use money that was for Jewish priests, Jewish temple, Jewish religious, Jewish offerings before God. And he'd turn around and he'd use that money to get in good with the Romans. And so the Jewish nationalists, as you could imagine, they hated this guy. Even though he was their high priest, they did not care for him. And when war begins with Rome in AD 66, they burn his house to the ground and he flees to the palace of Herod the Great in northern Jerusalem. And it's at that point where he becomes trapped and killed while he's hiding in the aqueducts. So he's hiding Rome and, and uh, Jerusalem. The, the Jewish people go to war. He hides out and they end up killing him. They did not like this guy because he did not kind of live up to what a priest should live up to, being pro-Roman, pro-violence, all these things uh, that he shouldn't have done. And Paul has this outburst here. He, he gets mad because what's happening isn't right. Uh, like I already said, much of our legal system is set up the way theirs is, where a person is presumed innocent until proven guilty and should not be punished until such a time that punishment is given. And so they order Paul to be struck, even though he hasn't even been, at this point, he hasn't even been formally charged. They're still trying to meet together to figure out what happened. So he hasn't even had formal charges laid against him. And now he's being punished for this unknown crime. And he's upset about it. And he, he calls the guy out. But we look at Paul's response here and we see it was quite different than Jesus' response when he stood before this same council of men several years ago. And in fact, first Peter, uh, Peter writes about his response in First Peter 2. And he said this, and I'm quoting some from Isaiah also, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And by his wounds, you were healed. If we're honest, most of us would have responded the way Paul did probably with this outburst. You know, if someone does something they shouldn't, there's injustice happening, especially if we're involved, we would have had probably an emotional outburst or emotional response, we would have been angry. And this is really a difficult one to, to figure out, you know, is there, what do we say about Paul here? Did Paul say something that was untrue? No, he really didn't. The man, the high priest blatantly broke the law that he was supposed to uphold on how to treat people. So you have the guy in the highest position of the land for the Jewish people and he's supposed to set the example and the standard of how you uphold the law, blatantly breaking the law and disobeying the law. And Paul, never known for his lack of boldness, calls him on it. 
He calls him a whitewashed, basically says you're whitewashed. We, we would say in our modern language, basically it's calling someone a phony, a fake, a pretender. He's saying you're whitewashed. You put on this clean exterior, but at your heart, you, you're, you're not a genuine believer, a genuine follower of God. You're not even trying to uphold the law. And so he insults the high priest. You know, we, again, like I said, it's difficult because Jesus at times also had very harsh words for this group of people, right? In Luke 11 and Matthew 23, you can find a long list of woes that he gives to the Pharisees. He tells them all these things that they've done and are doing wrong. And he, he, he hammers them at times. Jesus did. But in a formal counsel and directly to the high priest, Jesus didn't respond in that way. He trusted God with his judgment and trusted him who established authority. And he did not respond with this emotional outburst. And, and so, honestly, here's one of the ways I know Paul was wrong here is because he, he apologized for what he said. Had Paul not apologized for what he had said, I, I would have struggled. In fact, I probably would have thought, yeah, let them have it, Paul. Let these, you know, this, this kind of evildoers, these people doing these things, let them have it because they deserve it. They're corrupt. But we know he's wrong, one, because Christ set the example of how to interact, and two, Paul also apologized knowing that he should not have responded that way. And one of the things I found interesting is even though Paul, the words he said were right and accurate, being right doesn't always make us right. Sometimes we're in the right and, and what we say is correct and accurate and it's not untrue, but being right doesn't always make our actions right. And we sometimes get so hung up on, no, this is accurate, that we have to force it down and force it and force it and we, and we actually are doing things incorrectly. So we don't always have to be right even if we know we're right. And that's a tough lesson to learn. That's really tough for me. So Paul said something accurate, but the way he said it was not right, and he quickly apologizes. And I'd say this is where Paul is different from many of us. Most of us, I could say, I would include myself in this. Maybe it's just me. Maybe you're, you're better than that. I would have had probably some sort of similar outburst or explosion, be mad, a temper there. But he apologizes quickly for what he did, understanding that he should not call the high priest uh, that. And I would say myself, I probably would have doubled down on what I just said. Not only would I not have apologized, I would have went even further and said, oh yeah, and then once I found out who he was, I just would have lit back into him. And yet we see Paul apologize and, 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 and step back. Now how did Paul not recognize he was the high priest? Some have suggested it was his possible eye affliction. Um, that's some of the thoughts when Paul talks about a thorn in the flesh that he had an eye affliction. Uh, but most, the most likely answer is this, he was gone a lot. We've been reading through the whole book of Acts. Paul's gone on missionary journeys. It was a different world than we live in. They didn't have newspapers or internet or smartphones. You couldn't just see like, I'm curious what this person looks like and search their name. So the high priest is there and he knows the position of high priest. He even may recognize the man's name, but he's possibly never had a face-to-face interaction with them and they've never been formally introduced. So he doesn't recognize who the high priest is. That's the most likely answer. If you're gone all the time, traveling around the world and you come back and the position's changed, you may not recognize this person. You may have heard the name of who was high priest, but you've never seen him. And so Paul, once he knew who he was, he references Exodus 22 in verse 28, and it says this, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. And he apologizes for his statement. And something important for us to understand here is Paul's apology is based on the office, not the man. If God establishes authority, we are told to respect that authority. 
And, and the reality is that many people in authority positions, and, and we can just be specific to our country now, but even throughout the world, it, it's far worse. But specifically as it relates to our country, many people throughout uh, local, state, national government, they don't deserve respect based on their moral character and their personal character, if we were honest. If we looked at the lives of many of these people, their personal character is probably not, not really deserving of respect. In fact, the opposite's true. Many are lying, they're abusive of power, they're corrupt, and we could go on and on, right? But we respect the office that they hold, not, not because of who they are. Uh, I referenced a few weeks ago one of my favorite TV shows um, about the Army, and, and, and in it, Captain Winters tells another person in the Army, he says this, we salute the rank, not the man. You respect the position they hold. And I think if, if, we, if we in our minds, which we do, and we, we, we probably do at levels, we think we have cor- corrupt officials, the Jewish high priest at this time would have been far worse than many we have. He used his, he used his position to gain favor with Rome. Think about our, our, like our worst enemy. Can you imagine whoever, whoever that brings to mind for you, whatever country or, or group of people, our worst enemy on earth, if they took over our country and were ruling in our country and our own governing officials were lining their pockets to stay in a position of power, can you think of how traitorous that would be to your people? That's what this Jewish high priest was doing. And we think we have corrupt officials. We don't scratch the surface of corrupt compared to what they were doing. And yet, what are we told? That we respect the people that are in position of authority. Even though he was selling out his own people, Paul's supposed to respect his position of authority. Paul had written this in Romans 13. He wrote about how to interact with a non-Christian government, or any government for that matter, but he's writing to the people in Rome about how you interact with the government. In Romans 13:1. you could read the rest of the passage later, but it talks about how we interact with the government. It says this, "...let everyone be subject to the governing authorities." For there is no authority except that which God has established. The, the authorities that exist have been established by God. We're going through a thing in our small group we just started this week um, about in the book of Daniel. And the leader um, in that series of the small group, Larry Osborne, he's a pastor down in Southern California, he said it this way, God is in control of who is in control. God's in control of who's in control. Even if they make mistakes... God's, if we believe that, that God's ultimately in control, then we respect the authority that he's given to them, even if we don't like the person that's in control. We respect them because of the authority position they have that God's given them. And the next thing we see is Paul divides the council, continuing here in 23 verse 6. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away uh, from 
away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. And Paul, um, excuse me, Ron mentioned this last week. Um, Paul was not on a suicide mission. He did not want to get beaten or executed. When it came that time, he said, I'm a Roman citizen. Um, Clearly, though, he's not afraid of speaking the truth. But he also, in the middle of this tense situation, keeps his wits about him. And what does he do here? He kind of plays both sides against the middle, right? And I've said this before. There are things in the Bible sometimes that I think we just, we just learn from that are just descriptive for us to learn from. It's not really something we strive to do. And this is kind of one of those things. I wouldn't say um, it's good to try to play both ends against the middle. I think it's just a learning point where we see Paul kept his wits in the middle of this bad situation. It reveals his kind of humanity but yet he was very clever. He wasn't like, can you imagine all this going on around you? The people wanting to kill you, they're shouting, they're yelling, and you're trying to give a defense, and you got to come up with something that's going to save your own skin. And Paul does at the middle, he, he thinks, okay, I got Pharisees and Sadducees, let's turn them against each other. And so he does this, and, and we may think a good example for us to understand, maybe like a, a child whose parents are divorced, Maybe mom and dad get together and they're united on how they're going to punish the child, but then child says something that turns mom and dad against each other. Okay, I mean, we've probably seen that or you know an example of that. That's kind of what Paul's doing right now is he's saying, okay, mom and dad happen to be united right now. I need to turn them against each other. Well, mom, don't you remember when dad said this about you when this was going on? And so now mom and dad turn against each other instead of turning against the child. And so Paul's kind of doing this. He's saying, basically, you... You know, I'm a Pharisee. I believe in the resurrection. You guys don't. And so he turns these groups of people. So the, the Pharisees would have believed in the resurrection, and the Sadducees did not. And so Paul claims to be a Pharisee, which he was. He did follow the law in his personal conduct. He did believe in the resurrection. He did have some differences from the Pharisees. He believed in salvation through Christ. He did, he did meet with Gentiles, but in a, in a big sense, Paul w- was a Pharisee. And in his former life, he was a, a practicing Pharisee. Um, but now, um, the difference here, they did not believe resurrection came through Christ. Through faith in Christ, they did not believe in resurrection. Paul would have believed that resurrection came through faith in Christ. And the Sadducees did not. So now he's standing on, on, uh, on trial before these two groups of people. And the Pharisees come to his defense because he turns these groups of people against each other. They did not love Paul. They didn't have this like burning desire like, oh, we want to champion Paul as our leader of the Pharisees. They couldn't stand Paul. But now because he's identified as one of them and their beliefs, what are they defending now? They're defending their own beliefs. They're not defending Paul anymore. They kind of lose their, their logic and they become emotional. And that emotion turns against the Sadducees. And so they say, oh, you know, what if, what if they're wanting to get rid of us and what we believe? And so now Pharisees and Sadducees turn against each other and it begins to get violent. It says it got so violent that the Roman commander is afraid that Paul is basically going to be torn into pieces. And so he gets him out of there and removes him from the situation. And I, I, can you imagine how frustrated this Roman commander would have been at this point? He first gives Paul the chance to speak to a public audience. Paul speaks in Aramaic, so he doesn't understand him. The next time he speaks, Paul turns to Pharisees in the formal council. Paul speaks to the Pharisees and Sadducees, turns them against each other. The Roman commander still doesn't even know what Paul's formally accused of at this point. If I was him, I would be frustrated to wit's end. The way I picture it is like when my kids are all arguing with each other and there's four of them and they all get so mad and loud and they get that from their mother. Um, they get 
so they just get going crazy at each other. And it's like you're trying to figure out what's going on and you can't even get a straight answer. And it's like, so at one point you either give up and don't punish any of them or you just, you're mad and so you punish them all and you don't even know who's wrong and you're just like, that's it, you're all in for it. Well, at this point, it's kind of like the Roman officials, like that frustrated parent, like, I've just tried to ask you guys, what's going on? What's the charge against him? I want to keep peace in this province. And I need to know if there's an actual crime here and if there's an actual charge and if there needs to be a punishment. And he can't get any straight answer. So what does he do? He removes Paul from the situation, brings him back to the barracks for safety because he does not want an uproar or a violent thing to happen there. But he's got to be frustrated at this point. So he brings Paul back. And the last thing we're going to see is this. Is Paul is told he will go to Rome. In 23.11, The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. And Paul's fear about his trip to Jerusalem, they were realized. There was some concern about going back there. And he was persecuted for the sake of the gospel again. But in the middle of this turmoil... In the middle, all these bad things happening, we see the Lord comes to Paul and encourages him. Paul's already expressed his desire to go to Rome. He desires to go there to preach the gospel. He wrote that in Romans um, when he sent his letter before he went. And now he's confirmed, this trip is confirmed that he is going to be able to go to Rome. He's not going to die in Jerusalem. So in the middle, all the trouble that's going on around him, instead of having to worry about his life anymore, he gets this relief. He just has to trust in God's plan. If God is in control of who's in control, we'd say God is sovereign or all-powerful. If God's ultimately told him, no, you're going to go to Rome, now he just has to trust God and not worry about the circumstances he sees. And oftentimes, for us and for me, that's hard to do because we see what's around us and we see the circumstances we have, and it's hard to trust in God in the middle of those times. See, Paul here is clinging to the hope of life, He's worried that the Jewish religious high council is going to try to get him executed. And in his circumstances, don't look pretty. And yet God comes to him and speaks to him and says, no, you're going to go to Rome. And so he knows his life will be spared. So a few application questions real fast. Have we fulfilled our duty to God in all good conscience to this day? Paul made a really bold statement before that group of men, that he has fulfilled his duty to God in a good conscience. Can we even begin to utter a phrase like that? That I fulfilled my duty to God in a clean conscience. Man, I I don't know that I could. That's a tough one. What has God called us to do? Regardless of our circumstance, can we be so bold to proclaim I'm fulfilled my duty to God in a clean conscience? I'm reading a book right now called The Insanity of God. And the author wrote this. He said, Eventually I saw the choice that I held in my hands. Would I choose to trust this God who I could not control? Would I be willing to walk with this God whose ways are so different? Would I once again lean on this God who makes impossible demands and promises only His presence? This book is written by a person and about people who, like Paul, are following God wherever he's leading them. And I'd say, maybe we can't make that bold of a statement today, but maybe we could challenge ourselves to try to follow God, 
to grow in our faith, to walk with him to a point where we could say, man, I'm following God. I'm fulfilling my duty to God in a clean conscience. Where he calls me, I'm going. What he leads me to do, I'm doing. And we're not holding anything back from him. The next thing, do we respect authority? We saw Paul respected authority, especially when he realized who it was. Not have they earned our respect, but do we respect authority based on the position they have? I don't know if you've ever heard someone make a statement like this. I've heard Christians, I've, I've probably been guilty of it as well, basically make a statement, something like, I'll respect those who earn my respect. Biblically, when we're speaking about p- people in positions of authority, that, that's not an accurate statement. We respect them because we have a greater belief that God has established that position of authority and established that person in that position of authority. Now, this is a tough one. Because what do we do when a leader endorses something that's clearly anti-biblical? Can we still respect the position of authority and the position they have while standing up and fighting against the policies they're trying to move forward? How do we walk that line of respecting a person in the position of authority they have and fighting against the policies they're trying to enact? And I don't have a lot of great answers for you, but that, that's, a, that's a starting point. If we're asking that question, then I think we're headed down the right road to respecting their authority while fighting against the policies. You know, if, if we're honest, some of the most admired men in American history were our, our founding fathers in the Revolutionary War. How do we square that with Romans 13? Those are tough questions to think through biblically. Like it doesn't, it doesn't mean we did everything right in our country and how we were founded. Sometimes I hope, I hope you guys don't throw tomatoes at me for that. Um, but, but there are tough things to square there. When we look at Romans 13 and God establishing authority, is there a time to rebel against it? Or do we make mistakes and God works out of those mistakes and brings about good things? Again, I don't always have black and white answers. As I was writing this part of my message, these were just things I was thinking through. But I do think we, have a, we can stand against things and stand against principles and policies that are trying to be enacted while still respecting the leader. Um, you know, when Ron's here, I make fun of him and his love for wrestling and other things, but since he's gone, I'll, I'll say something nice about him. Um, I don't want to say it to his face, so I don't want to get a big head. Um, but this is one of the things he does well when, when you interact with him. Um, he, and we don't have these conversations like at church or things, but there's times in private we do about political things and things going on and leaders in the world and policies being enacted. And, and I could say one thing I, I see in him genuinely is he can genuinely disagree with a policy or something that a leader is trying to enact, but still speak respectfully of the position of authority they hold. And, and he'll, he'll say things like, man, that's a really tough position to be in. Um, you know, I wouldn't want to be in that position trying to decide that for our country, um, and we need to pray for wisdom for them. But here's kind of what I think the Bible says, and here's maybe some ways we can stand up against that. But we can be respectful of those in, in, in authority while challenging the policies they enact. And that's tough to do, and that's tough because sometimes we let these things wrap up our emotions. And, and, you know, for eight years before this administration, people were angry, and for four years or eight years, whatever this administration is, there's going to be people that are angry, and then there'll be another person that will be angry at then. And it's like, whoever it is, there's going to be, you know, basically 50% of our country is going to be really mad the whole time. It, It never changes, pretty much, if you look at election results. It's actually less than that. Generally, now presidents win with like 45 to 48, 49% of the vote. So over half the country is always mad. 
All right, so how do we respect those people in authority and fight against their policies? And, and, and that's, I wish I could tell you something, guys. I don't have any brilliant thing to say here other than I think that's something we need to think through is understanding God's in control of who's in control. And we as Christians need to be respectful of our leaders and we can stand up against the policies they enact and still respect them because ultimately when we respect the leaders, we're respecting and honoring God's sovereignty and his power. It's not about their position, it's about God's position. And if he tells us to respect the people that he's put in authority, are we respecting him? You know, in our house, we, we, we kind of say it this way, that if, if, you, if you disrespect my, my wife or you disrespect me, that, that's insulting both of us. We're on the same side. We're on the same team. When we insult our leaders and we disrespect them, if we truly believe God's established them, then are we disrespecting and insulting the God who established that leader? We don't always understand why he established that leader. Sometimes he's working on a larger scale than we can see and understand. But we trust him much more than we trust any leader that's established. So do we respect the authority? And last, do we trust God's plan for us? When we look around at things going on, um, it's easy to fear our own circumstance, right? Paul was fearful for his life. He had to be, man. These people were wanting to kill him. Can we be trusting God in the middle of something like that where we trust that he's in control more than we trust the circumstances we see around us? You know, there can be some dark and difficult days for sure in our life. But can we trust that God is ultimately the one in control and that if, he's, if we're following his plan for us and we're doing what he said, that we trust in him and not the circumstances, that we trust the joy that awaits us, that the eternal bliss that awaits us in heaven, do we trust that he's the one protecting us or do we just trust in the circumstances around us we see? We've been in a series called Detour and I don't know, I kind of started this a little bit. I, how many of you would say your life has turned out exactly as you've planned it, step by step? Pro- probably no one in this room, I would guess. And, and if, if so, if you're still on course, then it's either you're young or you're incredibly fortunate if your life is still on the plan you have. I, I know I could tell, tell you all sorts of ways my, my life has not turned out like I planned it at all. And there's all these detours and there's all these changes in my life. And, and the one thing I'm sure of is there's going to be many more changes that I don't see that lie ahead of me. In the middle of all these detours and all these changes, what can we be sure of? We can be sure of the same thing that Paul was sure of the same message that he continued to proclaim throughout the New Testament on these missions and acts. In the middle of life's ups and downs, the thing we can be sure of is our salvation, the blessed hope of our salvation. Titus 2 says it this way, and this is what Paul wrote. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we continue to live for him because we have a hope, our hope of salvation in him. It's not in any leader. It's not in any circumstance. It's not in the position we find ourselves in. Our hope is in Christ and him alone. Let's pray. Lord, um, 
man, you know our hearts, you know my heart, and you know it's difficult at times um, to fully live a life that our hope is, is in you and we don't let these things we see going on around us get us frustrated and upset and we don't let them weigh on us and nag at us. Lord, may our trust and our hope be in you. May we be able to live for you and say, man, I'm living for you with a clean conscience. Um, man, what, what a great example we see from Paul who would boldly proclaim the gospel message. Lord, help us to respect those people that you've put in authority. Um, Lord, help us to, to not just get so wrapped up in our circumstance that we forget that you're ultimately the one in control. Help us to have a greater trust in you and, and less pull at these circumstances that, that sway us and pull us away from you. Thank you, God, that we can trust, trust in you for salvation and trust in Christ, and that truth never changes and never sways. And may we be firmly planted in that. In Jesus' name, amen.